I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 8. Our Bible reading is going to be the first 11 verses, this familiar story of the woman caught in adultery, as we often title that particular story. But we'll read the whole thing beginning in verse 1 of John 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen. Well, in the Bible reading there at the end of verse 11, let's seek the Lord again in prayer. Ask his help as we have our Bibles open that the Lord would speak through his word. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we do sit in these pews with Bibles open before us and having read a familiar story in your word, we pray that by your spirit you would come and open our hearts and teach us those things that we need. We pray that you, by your spirit, would come in that encouraging voice to every believer in this place today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take as my text this morning the words of Christ in verse number 11. Neither do I condemn thee. These are words that every sinner longs to hear. On that day of judgment, as you stand before the God of heaven, these are the words you want to hear. Neither do I condemn thee. Our Lord met with many people during his ministry. Many of these people hated him. That becomes very evident as you read through the Gospels. And as a group, the, the scribes and Pharisees, these are often linked together in the Gospels as this antagonistic group that comes and they badger Christ all through his ministry. Uh, their disdain and their hatred for Christ was 
really ultimately out of their own wicked hearts, but it seems to be more pervasive than any other group that would approach Christ through his ministry. Now, these men, on the one hand, would say that they were looking for the Messiah, but yet actually, in truth, they weren't. They were really just looking for a God who was made in their own image, is what it really just boils down to. They weren't looking for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy so much as they were looking for a man who would come and lead them and overthrow this Roman domination that they had been experiencing for so long. They wanted a physical savior much more than they desired a spiritual one. And it is the sad case of uh, simply Satan blinding their eyes and blinding their minds to truth. When Christ came, they refused to see him for who he actually was. They refused to listen to the preaching of John the Baptist, for example, who stood and, as it were, pointed the finger as a signpost, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. They refused to put together the pieces of the puzzle when the wise men came and they asked, where is he born king of the Jews? And Herod said, I don't know. And he called his wise men in and, or called the other Jew, the Jewish leaders in. And the Jewish leaders said, well, that's an easy question. Micah already told us it's in Bethlehem. And so the wise men went. And there were so many pieces of the puzzle that were clear and evident for these scribes and these Pharisees that they should have recognized Christ as the Messiah, but they didn't. They tried many times to cause Christ to commit sin. They, they laid in wait. They, they tried to set traps for him. And John 8 is one such occasion. Somewhere they found this woman, supposedly, this is what they say, supposedly in the very act, in the middle of the act of committing adultery. And they brought this woman to Christ to see what Christ would do to her. But yet verse 6 sheds light and kind of reveals to us their evil intentions. They weren't interested in truth. Verse 6 tells us their motives. They said this tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They were simply setting a, a trap to catch Jesus. The law the Old Testament law demanded that this woman be stoned. They were right in verse 5. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So they're trying to catch Jesus here. He, in their mind, we have him. Because Jesus either has to contradict what Moses said. And so if he contradicts what Moses says, we've got him, right? Because, well, he's obviously not the Messiah if he's undermining Moses. Or Jesus is going to have to, in their mind, go against the tenor of all of his preaching of grace and of mercy. And they're going to say, well, this man, he can't be true. He's double-minded. He says one thing and then he says another thing. And these scribes and Pharisees, they think that they have just set this perfect scenario and they're finally going to get this man. They're finally going to get him. 
So when asked what to do with this woman, Jesus does something, let's admit, a little bit strange. It says in verse 6 there, he stooped down and with his finger began to write on the ground. Now, we're not told what he wrote. You can read commentaries and they come up with all sorts of ideas. There's no point in trying to understand what he wrote. But if we have anything, I know it's in italics in your, in your Bible, in the authorized version, we have that very last phrase of verse 6 in italics, as though he heard them not. You know, what was Jesus doing? How was he responding to them? It, it's, it reads almost like he was just trying to ignore them because he knew that they were up to no good. And so just, I'm not going to give you the time of day kind of attitude. I don't, I don't know, but it would seem that this is something that was going on. And when they pressed him further, he just continues to do something with his finger in the dust of the temple floor. And finally he stands up, verse 7, and he says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. And by those words, he springs their trap and they catch nothing. Because in those words, he's not denying that this woman was guilty of sin. And in these words, he's not letting her off the hook. He foiled their plot. And then Christ looks up again from his writing and there's nobody there except this poor woman. She's all alone with Christ. And we read that question, woman, where are those thine accusers? Where have they gone? Has nobody condemned you? And her response is, no man, Lord. No one had condemned her. They had all left. That whatever Jesus wrote, whatever happened, they were pricked in their conscience. And each one to the man knew, I can't throw a stone. And they all left. And there she is. And then we read these words, words in verse 8. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee. These were words of grace. These were words of mercy in her ears. And these are words that I submit to you brought her to repentance in her heart to Christ. This morning as we come around the Lord's table, we're, we're here at a, a communion service today. We're going to be partaking of these elements, the cup and the bread. The, the cup and the bread are given to us as special symbols, special emblems to remind us of the Lord's broken body and his shed blood. As we come to the Lord's table and as we hold that piece of bread and as you hold that cup, I want you to be reminded of these words. Neither do I condemn thee. We're coming to a place today of no condemnation. Because Christ has paid the penalty for all of our sins. We're forgiven. There are no stones to be thrown at you. 
Christ says to you, neither do I condemn thee. So I want to preach to you this morning from these words as we would collectively prepare our hearts here for this communion table and as we focus on the scriptures. The first thing I want you to see from these words is that this is a statement that seems contrary to reason. Neither do I condemn thee. It's a statement that seems contrary to reason. I say it seems contrary to reason because everything we know of Christ and everything we know of God in the scriptures is that he is holy. When we say that God is holy, what we mean by that is he is separate. He is different. We are common. We are ordinary. God is holy. He's separate. He's separate from sin. As God, Christ as God cannot tolerate sin. He is bound by his nature to punish sin. He must punish sin. We have example after example through the scriptures. You can go back to the Old Testament. The very first sin, Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. And God couldn't just ignore it. He couldn't just let it go. He had to punish sin. Genesis 6, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And he punished sin. He sent the flood. We read of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read of Nadab and Abihu. We read of Uzzah. We read of the Lord punishing Moses for striking the rock a second time after he had been told to speak to the rock. He punished King Saul when Saul disobeyed by not slaying the Amalekites. The list could go on and on and on. On and on and on is that list of, of God punishing sin. We, we can't escape just the simple fact that God punishes sin. But Christ's words to the Pharisees were, He that is without sin among you, well, let him cast that first stone. Well, of all the people standing in that temple at that time, there was only one qualified to throw a stone at this poor woman. Christ had every right to condemn her. She was guilty, she was a sinner. She deserved condemnation, but yet he didn't condemn her. Instead, he forgave her. It's a statement that seems contrary to reason. And I would ask you to search your own heart and your own conscience. Does this phrase not hit your heart in a way that is contrary to reason? Because you hear these words, neither do I condemn you. Those words come from outside of you. Those words come from Christ to you. But yet your heart condemns you, does it not? Your heart condemns you. Satan would condemn you. But yet Christ doesn't condemn you. Some of you have family that condemn you. You have friends that would condemn you. You have co-workers that would condemn you. But I go back to that, that greatest foe we face, our own hearts, condemn us. But yet listen to the words of Christ. Neither do I condemn thee. Now this is contrary to reason. Because we understand it. We know the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth it shall die. We know this is the truth of Scripture. So how can it be that we can hear these words, neither do I 
condemn thee? Well, the answer to that question is found in my second point. While on the one hand it's a statement that is contrary to reason, I want you to see secondly that it's a statement that centers on redemption. It's a statement that centers on redemption. Christ did not come to the world to fulfill the expectations of the scribes and the Pharisees for a civil authority, a civil leader. He didn't come to overthrow Caesar. He didn't come to, to overthrow the, the Roman government or to set up anything like that as far as earthly kingdoms go. His disciples, it seems almost to the very end, even up to just moments before the crucifixion, his disciples were still confused as to exactly what was going on. And up almost to the very end, they were asking, Lord, when, is, when are you going to establish your kingdom? They, they were anticipating you know, some physical thing that Jesus was going to do and we're going to take up swords and we're going we're to win this thing. But that's not what Christ came for at all. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose. We have so many purpose statements in the scriptures. Matthew one twenty one, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Well, why that name? Because he shall save his people from their sins. This is a promise of what Jesus came to do. He came to destroy the works of the devil. We have all these purpose statements in there, and they're spiritual. They're spiritual in nature of what Christ came to do. He came to save men and women from their sins. And so when I say that this statement, neither do I condemn thee, centers on redemption, it doesn't ignore her sin. It doesn't ignore the fact that she was guilty of adultery. The Lord does acknowledge that. If you're without sin, throw the stone. She deserves to be stoned. Throw it. So the Lord doesn't just brush that away. And we also read in the text, he is acknowledging her sin by saying to her, now go and sin no more. Well, the implication is you have sinned. Stop it. Don't sin anymore. So, so the Lord is not just ignoring sin. What we have here is a picture of forgiveness and a picture of redemption. It's because of redemption that Christ could tell her that she was not condemned. Christ knew that it wouldn't be long till he would go to the cross. And she was among that number that he was going to die for. She was among that number that he was going to shed his blood for. And so it's impossible for Christ to condemn her and still pay the penalty for her sin. God does not demand double payment for sin. It's a major problem with the error of Arminianism. They teach that Christ died for all. For what purpose? If Christ died for all, and Christ forgave the sin of all, then why is anybody in hell? What are they paying for? And so then you're backed into the logical corner that Jesus died for all the sins of all the people, except for that sin of unbelief. He died for all the sins except for that one. And, and they're being punished because they didn't believe. Well, if unbelief is a sin, 
and Jesus died to pay the penalty of all the sins, then why did he miss that one? I, I speak as a fool, obviously. The hymn writer, I believe it was Augustus Toplady. I think that's the writer. The end of one of his stanzas, he puts it very well. Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. If Christ has paid the penalty for your sins, there's no condemnation. This is what the Apostle Paul gets at when he writes that in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. We, we quote that verse all the time. But I wonder if we catch the context. I wonder if we catch the flow. Because the flow of Romans 8.1 comes right off the heels of Paul screaming at the top of his lungs that my own heart condemns me. Romans 7. O wretched man that I am. All these things that I know I'm not supposed to be doing, I do them. All these things that I, I know I'm supposed to do, I fail all the time. I'm so miserable. I know I'm supposed to do right and I do wrong. I know I'm not supposed to do wrong and I do it anyway. But there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Where your heart would condemn you because of redemption, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The payment that Christ was going to offer was more than enough to pay the penalty of this poor woman's sins. And this is the message of the gospel to our own souls, is it not? If you're saved, if you've been born again, then these words at the end there of verse 11 are words to your heart this morning. Neither do I condemn thee. Regardless of the accusations that Satan would hurl, and you know, Satan's a liar. He's the father of lies. That's true. But when Satan accuses me of sin, I got enough that he doesn't have to make stuff up. Right? He, he can tell the truth. Right? He, he doesn't have to lie. He has a whole long list of things that he can accuse me of. And I have to stand back and say, you're right. The only thing is... <laughs> There's a lot you don't know about, right? I, I did way worse than what you're saying I did. This woman didn't deny the accusations that came against her. But yet because of redemption, Christ can say, neither do I condemn thee. There's no condemnation because the law that once accused you is a law that Christ has perfectly fulfilled. There's no condemnation because the wrath of God that once was to fall upon you, Christ completely consumed in himself. He took all of the wrath of God on himself. There's no condemnation left because Satan has been defeated. He is a conquered foe. He's not in the process of being conquered he is a conquered foe. In justification, 
We read in our catechism that God accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is his own perfect obedience, Christ's own perfect righteousness imputed to you. And as Christ imputed his righteousness to this woman, we have to understand it in gospel terms. As Christ imputed his righteousness to this woman, he could say to her, neither do I condemn thee. I'm going to be condemned for you. In time, in this particular instance, it hadn't happened yet, but it was going to. It was sure as done from, from the realms of eternity. I don't condemn you because I've already taken that condemnation to myself. Everyone that Christ has redeemed has his perfect righteousness. You stand before God clothed in that perfect righteousness. And when God looks at you clothed in that perfect righteousness of Christ, there is nothing to condemn because Christ is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. And you stand in that. You don't stand in your own filthy garments to use the illustration from Zechariah. At that judgment day, there'll be Satan there to condemn you. Whatever sins you've done, but we can say Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he has washed it white as snow. So it's a statement that centers on redemption. But I want to finish this morning looking at one more point here. And that is that this is a statement that causes a reformation. It's a statement that causes a reformation. I say that because of what we have at the end of the verse. Go and sin no more. This woman's life was changed. This woman was, I don't know, I've never stoned anybody, so I don't know how long it takes. But she was minutes from death. I mean, she was minutes from death. And now her life, she's free. Her life is completely changed, completely transformed. We don't know exactly all of her situation. We don't know if this woman was a, a harlot. We don't know if this was a, a moment of weakness and, and this is the first adultery she'd ever committed. We don't know any of that. We don't know any of that backstory. We just know she did a sin. She committed a sin. But now she's changed. Now her life is different. You, you cannot remain in sin and simultaneously be converted and, and believe the gospel. Now that's not to say if you're converted and believe the gospel, you don't sin. But what I'm saying is if you're converted and you believe the gospel, you are made a new creature. Your, your heart is changed. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And you cannot remain as a, a, a pursuer and lover of your old paths. You change. For you to remain in sin means that you are ungodly. To be ungodly is to simply be without God. It is to be unlike God. It is to be, it is to be without Him. It is to ignore Him. And a true believer can't do such a thing. This woman, I submit to you, couldn't do such a thing. 
When she heard those words, go and sin no more. Don't you have to think that the next time anything remotely like this came up in her life, those words just echoed in her mind. Go and sin no more. Sin no more. It would do us good, would it not, when we face temptation to remember this? I'm not condemned. And so because of that, I don't want to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. Or just put it in the context of what we've already mentioned from Romans 8. And off the heels of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. You may feel that you're the most tempted Christian that's ever lived. You ever felt that way? It's like nobody's tempted as bad as I'm tempted. People don't understand the, the temptations that I face. Well, Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am. And if you find your place there, then just remember, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And so this, neither do I condemn thee. Nobody threw a stone at her. The carnal one would come to this passage of Scripture and say, Jesus is light on sin. Right? This adultery is not a big deal, right? I mean, he, he let her off the hook. And so, you know, we've got, we've got liberty We've got license. I mean, Jesus, Jesus didn't throw a stone at her. And so all these sins that I'm guilty of, I've not gotten caught yet. I'm off the hook. Far from being a license to sin, these words, neither do I condemn thee, come not as a license to sin, but as a liberty to serve. I don't mean to alliterate and be all cute, but not a license to sin, but a liberty to serve. We're set free from that old bondage where we're tied to sin and our hearts are, it's like we're on a winch and just being pulled in closer and closer to sin. That cord's been cut. And now we're being drawn by other cords. We're being drawn and enveloped by the cords of love and drawn to Christ. And we have liberty to serve him. Your sins have been forgiven. It costs the precious blood of Christ. That's one of the things we're remembering here at the Lord's table is the blood of Christ. Have you ever thought that it costs more to save you than it did to create you? To create you cost a word. Let it be. But to save you required the death of his only begotten son. It required the blood of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And in light of that, how can you return to sin? How could you, know, you think about this woman? You know, she, she hears this, she experiences this. How can she go back with these words from Christ? And as the temptation was there, could you know, she just, she, what was this facial expression that, that she saw when he said that? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
There's a generation of believers today that sadly think that Christian liberty is a freedom for them to do whatever they want to do. But it's just a carnal pursuit of, of flesh is all it is. The truth is that, I've coined this phrase a long time ago, these people are in bondage to their own liberty. What they perceive to be a liberty has ensnared them. And rather than having the liberty to do this, that, or the other thing, which we could debate that, it's, I have liberty, watch. And they have to prove it to you. And it just comes full circle into bondage. It, it really is legalism. It's so interesting. If you follow antinomianism and make the full circle, you come right back to legalism. It's the same sin. It's the same sin. It's just, it just kind of changed its clothes as it went around the corner. But it's the same thing. It's, it's an absence and a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. But the liberty of the gospel is not a liberty to do whatever you want. Liberty is not lawlessness. Liberty is a freedom to serve. And so when Christ says, go and sin no more, she could follow Christ instead of her sin. Obedience to the commandments of God. It's not a sign of spiritual weakness. That's what some would have us think today. If you have a tender conscience, a sensitive conscience to sin, that's not a sign of weakness. Many would interpret it that way. But obedience to the commandments of God is actually a sign of spiritual strength. It's actually a, a sign of a, of a changed heart. And so I, I pray that the Lord will encourage us with these words this morning. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. They should bring great joy, gratitude to our heart. We're not condemned by God because of Christ, because of all he has done. He took all that wrath, all that punishment that we rightly deserved, but he took it to himself. The very heart, the very heart of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the fact that all of your sins are pardoned. We live, I live, you live, if you be honest with yourself, you live with so much guilt. We're little Romanists in our heart. And how many times have you, maybe, you know, as a parent, you, you counsel your children, and they've sinned, and they, they confess that, they apologize for it, and the next day, they come and they tell you that they're sorry again. In like two or three days, they're still telling you, I'm sorry. Well, what are you waiting for? And we all do it. We all do it. We think that we have to repent until we feel something. Until I feel forgiven. I would submit to you that's no different than Roman Catholic penance. You may as well go to the confessional and have him tell you what to do. Because you're doing the same thing to yourself. You're doing the same thing to yourself. I have to keep repenting and I have to, you know, punish myself 
until I feel that I'm forgiven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ has died. He's paid the penalty of your sins. You've been forgiven. Please don't take this the wrong way. And please understand the heart and the spirit that this phrase comes to you. Sin, confess it, and move on. Move on. Go to the next thing. You're going to sin again. Confess it and move on. Because Christ has forgiven you. We confess our sins. We don't pursue sin. We pursue righteousness. But as we come to the communion table this morning, I want these words to stick in all of our ears. Neither do I condemn thee. Amen.